What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 70 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that this is the second podcast in a month rather than the usual one. This is because I was lucky enough to interview both Andy Sprakes and Gwyn App Harry, the co-founders of XP School in Doncaster, England. Now, I was initially going to release these episodes as 69 Part A and 69 Part B, but this chat with Gwyn was just so good that I had to release it as its own episode, ERRR episode number 70. Gwyn is one of the coolest humans I've ever met. His thinking and his writing are crystal clear and they cut to the heart of complex issues. Gwyn exemplifies what some have called first principles thinking. That is, a refusal to follow the crowd or do things in a certain way because, quote, that's how everybody does it or, quote, that's how it's always been done. And instead, Gwyn and other first principles thinkers take an approach that allows us to see issues with fresh eyes and with assumptions stripped away. First principles thinking is hard, but when we're willing to do it, it has the potential to open new ways to solve problems, new answers to old questions, and new questions to answer. This was a completely unplanned interview. I was in an empty classroom at XP, packing up my recording equipment and about to leave and get on a train back to London when Gwyn came into the room for a quick chat and, after about 15 minutes, I asked if I could start recording. We talked and we talked and then we just kept on talking and we finished our conversation five hours later. What you're about to hear is about the first hour and a half of that phenomenal discussion. This is a wide-ranging interview covering everything from leadership to culture to Gwyn's upbringing, the creation of XP, and even to the solving of a Rubik's Cube. And I'm sure that through this episode, you'll get a real sense of just what a fantastic thinker Gwyn is. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. And before you do head into this episode, just a reminder that I send out a weekly email each Friday with ideas, reflections, and takeaways about the week just gone and about all things teaching and learning. If you're keen to receive that weekly dose of edu goodness, then simply go to ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 70 of the ERRR podcast with Gwyn App Harry. And we really are jumping straight in this time to halfway through a chat that Gwyn and I were having on character and the making of it. Enjoy. So in terms of character, go more fundamental than that first, right? Because... A lot of the things that that teachers focus on are the things that happen in the classroom, right? So if you're from Australia, so you might have heard of a guy called John Hattie, right? You know, I get told by my Australian colleagues that whatever John Hattie says, that's we have to listen, right? Okay, and that's that's great. And he's he's done a lot of work with a lot of data and, you know, I could talk about whether that's valuable or not or how valuable I see it. But he'll tell you or the books tell you that the biggest impact that you can have on kids, da-da-da, is, you know, 
things like quality feedback and this, that, and the other. And do I disagree with that? No. Do I think that has the biggest impact? No. In England, you've got Dylan William, who says pretty much the same thing. He says the biggest impact you can have is, is formative assessment, quality formative assessment. Do I think that has the biggest impact on kids? No. The reason being is because that all happens in the classroom. It's what, what happens outside the classroom before the kids get in the classroom has the biggest impact on kids. Like wise lady Michelle Navarra, I don't know where she got it from, but wise lady Michelle Navarra said to me, teaching is what you do before you stand up in front of the kids. Her number one priority, the same as us, is that we keep kids safe. That's not quality feedback or formative assessment or project-based learning or blah, 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 right? And this is where the character piece comes in. What do we do before we start trying to teach kids stuff? You know, we invest at least 45 minutes every day and we call it crew. And do we, we keep our kids safe? That's number one. We ask, are the kids able to engage with us? That's lowering barriers. Have they got special educational needs? Have they got is the, uh, deprivation issues? And it's also lowering ladders. You know, can our most academically able kids reach the heights where they, they need to? So it's both. Because uh, bored kids are just as disengaged as kids who can't read stuff. So number two is, is do they engage, are they engaging with us? Number three is, are they attending school? Engagement comes before attending because that might be a reason for non-attendance. If the kids aren't at school, yeah, you can't give them quality feedback, right? Before academic performance, number four is, are they forming habits? We use our habits of work and learning, work hard, get smart, be kind, and our character traits, courage, respect, craftsmanship and quality, integrity and above all, compassion. You can't be a role model for them if they're not at school. And then underneath habits, it's academic performance, number five. But that isn't to say that, that's, that academic performance is not important. It is. It's, it's really important. You know, do our kids get great qualifications? Yes, they do. They, they're able to open, open the doors that they need to for their character and beautiful work to shine through and get the place at university, get the small business loan, you know, uh, get the job. But there's, are they safe? Are they engaging with us? Are they attending? Are they forming habits before we get to performing academically? Like most schools don't do that. Most schools say, is Ollie's not doing well at maths, so I'll give him more maths, right? They don't say, Ollie's not doing well at maths, because he's a high perf- academically performing kid and he's bored, so we need to stretch him more. That's engaging, you know. Or is it? He's not here, so we need to have great relationships with his parents to sort out why he's not coming to school, not send him fines. That's the opposite of what we should do. So for me, it's those things that we do outside of the classroom which have much more impact, right? People who just focus on what happens in the classroom tend to be the people who don't have a problem getting to school. Like me, they probably look like me, right? Probably like, uh, I won't say old, middle-aged, middle-aged white men, right? Who, who haven't had the issues that most people had, who start from a beginning that's different to a lot of kids. So that's where we start. 
that's where we're starting from character is social equity. Like, how do we keep these kids safe? How do they engage with us? How do we ensure that they're coming to school regularly? How are they farming habits? And then we can start to look at how are they doing well in maths? So it's wider than just going, we need to teach kids a character. It's also wrapped up, you know, that I, I know years ago and I, I, and I, I was part of it, like the, there was this learning to learn movement in, in England, I don't know about Australia, but it was like, how do we teach kids how to learn? And we used to have, some schools used to have separate learning to learn lessons and I always felt uncomfortable about it because you want to learn through purpose well <laughs> and that's why I've, that's why we do expeditions right like like our kids don't say I don't know why I'm learning this they know why they're learning it they have a purpose even if it's a made-up purpose you know like then at least they know they've got to learn something to create something for a lot of kids the purpose of to pass an exam is not enough and there's often a reason to display or behaviours. So we always, just, we always start with the purpose. What's the purpose? And to learn purposefully, you learn character. And it's funny, it's like you can say, oh yeah, we don't teach kids character at, at our school. Every school does, every teacher does, right? You, you're either doing it well or not, or not aware of it or doing it badly. You know, you might, you might be teaching kids character arbitrarily, but you are the role model for them at least. Mm. So we try and make it explicit and talk about habits of work and learning within lessons, talking about activating our character traits, not developing. I think that's a bit of a red herring because we've all got it within us, you know, to be courageous. I don't think it's additive. I think it's just enabling it to come out. Yeah, that's what I sort of think. <laughs> what's, what's impactivity? Oh, <laughs> right. This is a really interesting one. Oh, my God. I will talk to you about this for, like, days. Okay, so I'll tell you a little story. My background is, like, I love music, using computers, really simple. So I've got a computer science degree, sort of fell into teaching because I was in a band and I could gig at the in the holidays and stuff like that, but started falling in love with education and learning and that's really when I sort of thought yeah this is my second day the second day you know that saying the, the two most important days of your life is when you were born and the second day is when you realize why <laughs> oh, yeah, I hadn't heard that I like that <laughs> so yeah so I sort of realized I like this I'm pretty good at this I enjoy it I get up I, I will get up every day of my life to do this so I started teaching and then I started putting my sort of technology background to it. It's like, oh, we can use technology to help teach. I put, and funnily enough, I put together a portfolio, an online portfolio system for formative assessment based on self-assessment and um, created a a company around that in 2004 that's uh, still going and doing real work, realsmart.co.uk. Anyway, I had to learn how to create uh, how to develop software. I had to learn, when you develop software, you learn about user interface design and you had to learn about how to get things done quickly on a budget. And I didn't know anything about it. And to cut a long story short, 
the conventional way of project management is through a waterfall process, through prints, whatever they call it, prints two or whatever, which... Gantt charts and that kind of thing. Gantt charts, there you go. Right? Which just didn't feel right and didn't sit right with me, especially in, in terms of software. So I Googled project management and came across a sort of body of knowledge called agile project management and read into that and went, yeah, this is, this is it. This is more aligned to me. And then I found a company that are now called Basecamp. They used to be called 37 Signals. I've used Basecamp. Right. I use it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Now the best thing about the company Basecamp, well, the software is great. Yeah. But the best thing about them is that they, talk about how they do things themselves. It's like a meta company, right? You buy into how they are doing it, why they are doing it, and how they are doing it. Obviously, the software matches how they do things, and it matches how I do things too. And so through learning those things, I thought I had a bag of tricks which allowed me to get loads of stuff done really quickly, which sort of seemed natural to me, but amazed other people. Like, so back in 2014, I was building a school, I was running my company, and I was also building my house, which ended up on Grand Designs. If you've heard that, you can have a look at that. The cinema uh, in Thorn in Doncaster. Uh, But I was doing those three things and, you know, like people say, you can't do it, you can't do that. But but I was, and I, I wasn't overstretched. And it was because I'd built these strategies, which I thought were a bag of tricks. So when we started to grow and I saw people struggling with workload, I thought, ah, oh, I'll just teach them this stuff that I know. I'd call it productivity, right? But people see productivity as being, how do you do as much as possible in a fixed space of time, right? That's not what I do. I do less, but it just has more impact, Right. So I was like, no, it's not do more in a short space of time. It's do less and have more impact. And uh, my friend Mark Lovett, who is the head of uh, Gateshead, XP Gateshead now, he said, well, don't call it productivity then. Call it impactivity. And I went, okay. <laughs> so we sort of made, a, made the word up. But I started writing those things down. And then as I was teaching those things to other people, I was realizing that I had to go more fundamental. So I have a concept, like, say there's a concept like the big picture, which is how to organize everything that you do or everything you've got in your head into a hierarchical structure. The big picture is a concept. But in order to get there, I was realizing I had to go more and more fundamental. So before the big picture, we talk about something called the imperative within. And it's like the imperative within versus the command from above. And it's about two different leadership styles. One is a leadership that empowers people and one is leadership that wields power. And you can see an absolute split. And I I don't like that model of the world because I like things to be in loads of different colours, right? But there it is. And you can name people and you can say, well, they're... Uh, the expert leader who knows exactly what to do and he tells everybody what to do and and they're wielding power or you can be the 
what we call the relational problem solver who is there to empower people. And that's what we need. We need that those leaders to empower uh, people. Teachers, good teachers, teachers that I see, empower students rather than wield power. And again, you could put those teachers, those schools in two different camps. But going even more fundamental, it actually goes down to, well, we call them the, the fundamental foundations, the FFS. <laughs> you need to know this, right? So we go down to... Like if you want to know about, so what we found is that impactivity is, is actually systematic leadership development. Like you can go to Waterstones or wherever and buy tons of books on leadership and you'll be able to scratch your chin and go, hmm, yes, 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 yes. But there isn't one where it goes, one, do this, two, do that, three, do that. Well, impactivity is that. It's a systematic process for developing leadership a certain type of leadership, a relational problem solver. But in order to get onto that as well, yeah, the fundamental foundations is like, so what is leadership? Well, you have to go more fundamental than that. You've got to go, well, what is an organisation? What is a community? It's a layered pedagogy, right? You have to go from north upwards. So, like, we start off with what is an organisation or what is a community, right? And because you've got to make this the most fundamental concept of understanding what leadership is, is that communication is organization. It's the fundamental thing. So most people see organizations as being an entity and it's not, it's a concept, right? It's an idea. And ideas are only, only exist if they're shared amongst people. So if you if you say, well, let's call our organization a community, right? Well, community and communicate share the same etymology, right? It's 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 actually to to share or commune around common goals or, or shared ideas. So to put that simply and to um, explain it to somebody else, you go, let's say our community has five people if they're not communicating with each other there is no organization right if they're not talking to each other or communicating with each other there is no organization so an organization is communication it's the same thing if then you go the quality of an organization is the quality of communication right not it's directly proportional to or Communication is a subset of what we do in our organization. It's the same thing. So to increase the quality of the organization, you increase the quality of communication. Not many people look at their organizations in terms of the quality of communication within it. That's number one. Number two is people can be communicating, but what about, right? So if the purpose of a community is to gather around uh, uh, common goals to share ideas, you know, then you can talk about shared conceptual understanding. So if number one is the quality of communication, number two is within that quality of communication, what's the quality of shared conceptual understanding? And that's it. That's the quality of an organisation. There's nothing else. Everything else is a consequence of it. So it's, you know, like... If you went to the fundamentals of football, you know, you go, this is a ball, right? The purpose of football is to pass the ball 
to someone else in the same coloured shirt as you or the opponent's net. Goals are a consequence of being great at passing. Now, a shot is a pass into the net. And that's it. That's football. And Johan Cruyff, one of the best footballers ever, said this, football is a really simple game and playing simple football is one of the hardest things to do. And that's what I've been obsessing about and impactivity is that, is like, how do you simplify things? How do you take something as complex as education? And education is as complex as humans, as complex as human behaviours, right? Uh, which is why I love it. It's like a Rubik's Cube with about 20 million different sides. How do you simplify that in order to empower people to do great things with kids? And I think that's, that's my job. In terms of impactivity, what, what are the biggest traps that when you're developing leaders, because I've been reading your blog and you said one of the, well, first of all, in Howie XP, you talk about how when Ron Berger moves into a school or goes into a school, he, he, he checks the tuning. He works out what needs to be tuned up, what's in tune, yeah. things what's like that. What's loose and what's tight. What's loose and what's tight. And you said if there's something that's loose at XP right now, at least the time that you wrote the blog post, which yeah. was a few few months ago, it's leadership development. Yeah. So when you are developing leaders and you're trying to help them to understand the difference between productivity and impactivity, mm. helping them to understand that the quality of this organisation depends upon mm. the quality of uh, the shared how sh- shared the ideas are, as well as the quality of the communication between its constituents. What are the what are the traps people fall into all the time? So the convention of when you first become a leader, the convention is right. I'm leading these people. I need them to do what I want them to do. So I'm going to tell them what to do. They will do what I tell them to, and then everything will be great. Sounds simple, right? Sounds easy. It's the fastest and easiest way of getting things done. Tell someone else what to do and, and, and make sure that they do it. But that's starting with the what. And you'll find that if you tell people what to do, they'll make up the how, but they'll, they'll lead with the why. Why should I do that? How am I supposed to do that when blah, 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 blah. So they'll shortcut. They won't follow the instructions with integrity because they don't understand why. They'll say, why? I'll ask you the question. So that's the biggest trap. The way to mitigate that is to start with the why, right? If someone's asking you why, there's a reason. So, but that takes time. It's not the easiest, quickest way of doing things or getting things done. It's longer, but ultimately bears fruit, like great parenting, right? If you explain the why, first then people will understand and buy into the reason why and they'll probably work out the how themselves in fact the how don't matter as long as they hold the integrity of the why and then we go and this is what it looks like when you get it right so for me that's the biggest easiest quickest trap of if you put someone into leadership they'll try to do things fast and quick it's just human nature so they'll they'll tell people what to do rather than explaining why uh, they're doing it i fall into that trap all the time still do the reason why i say that leadership development i'm i didn't know i'd written that in the in our book i'm glad i did it was in the blog oh yeah 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 so the way we 
conventionally teach leadership is through our leadership structures. So all our leadership structures are pretty much hierarchical leadership structures. And the conceptual understanding, the strength, the, the strong conceptual understanding, hopefully, is at the top of the hierarchy. And then you sort of drip feed it through your lines of accountability, through your teams, down to the bottom. And inevitably, there's an erosion of understanding, like Chinese whispers, right? There's an erosion of understanding until it gets to the bottom. And ironically, the people at the bottom of the hierarchy are the people working directly with the kids. That's where the conceptual understanding must be the strongest, not the weakest, right? So while I'm calling out, we've not got leadership development right, it's because we need a certain type of leader at XP. We need, we need leaders who empower rather than wield power. And not many organizations do that, do that well. And we've literally just changed our whole leadership structure to enable that to happen. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Simon Sinek, right? So he's written a book, his latest book is called The Infinite Game. And I love his work because it's like, I don't learn anything new from it. It's like, oh, right, that's what I've been doing. Oh, right, that's what I can call it now, right? It's so affirming and it's so aligned and in tune with what I do, how base camp the company works, you know, those kind of organizations. And we've, we've come across and uh, we've, we've said we need a, a, a less conventional leadership structure and that's what we've moved to. We've moved to a, a structure that splits the CEO role up into two. It's like in, in, his, in his book, he says, we need a new title. It says, because like you've got the chief financial officer. Well, we know what the chief financial officer's in charge of, right? Or leading finance, yeah? Chief technical officer, you know, the, the clue is in the title, right? Chief executive officer, right? What, what does that do, yeah? Chief operations officer, yeah, yeah. Operations, the, the manager, get you know, the business as usual churner. And he, he extols the virtues of. He calls it the chief visionary officer, but I don't. I don't like that. I, uh, I always say we've, we've never had a vision that we commit to the design process. The more we commit to the design process, the better our work. So this is what we've done. So now Neil Butler, who was our executive principal, he's going to be our chief operating officer. The football manager that's in that's responsible for the results, yeah, and I'm going to be the chief design officer who's responsible for holding the integrity of the XP model. So we curate what we do, we codify, curate what we do, and everybody who works for us for our trust spends time in both the doing and the leading is in the schools, XP schools, and the the professional teaching and learning is in what we call XP University. So XP University is um, where we hold the why. This is why we do things. This is how we do it. And this is what it looks like when we get it right. If we don't know how to do something, we, got, we all go to XP University, figure it out, enshrine it, and then go back and make sure we do that with integrity. And that's our next move. There's one thing saying we've not got leadership development right. I mean, looking at any organization, I know I don't think they're getting it right either. You know, we, there's that thing that you promote people until they're redundant, right? <laughs> like, oh, you're really good at that. We'll get you to do something different. 
until you can't do it and then you don't get promoted. So you stay in that position, not effective. The other thing is like not many people reward leaders who have made themselves redundant. So the opposite is is this, right? Most organizations hold competitions to see who holds the most amount of knowledge in their brain, who has got the most power that isn't sharing it with anybody else. They're called interviews, right? These competitions. And then they work out who holds the most power and then they give they reward them with money. Like I've told our leaders that if ever I walk into a room and they've got the feet up and they've got the feet up because their schools are working like clockwork. It's because they've empowered their other leaders to do the right things. And, you know, I felt that twice. I felt that in Greentop Primary School when Neil Butler was running it. He was calm and we'd just, I'd go and visit him anytime and he was calm and we'd walk around the school and the school was calm and, and the kids were really purposeful not silent or quiet, but really purposeful, doing purposeful stuff wherever they were sat, whether it was at a table or whether it was on a beanbag or under a, in a cardboard box. I felt it there and it was the same feeling I had when I went to high tech high, when I walked into a classroom and the kids were working purposefully and you, could, you, you had to look around to find the teacher because the kids were, were empowered to do the work you know, themselves. And it's funny that it, I recognise that that's the same feeling and it's the feeling when I see empowerment. And empowerment looks calm and measured and relaxed and sometimes noisy, sometimes messy, but they're doing great things, you know. So that's, uh, you've got a world exclusive. <laughs> oh, I'm very excited about it. Mean. <laughs> but you look into the world, you know, Apple have got Apple University. Yeah, you look at Barcelona, FC Barcelona, their new motto is more than a club around the stadium. It says more than a club, more than a trophy, more than a player, more than a goal, right? It's about their community. You know, you go to FC Barcelona Museum, Johan Cruyff's shirt is there and they say that's when Barcelona started. Not 18 whatever. It was like this was this is the philosophy, the culture. That's what we're need to build started it yesterday <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let you know how it goes before defining the program my old tank <laughs> you mentioned you said when if you go to a bookstore and buy all these leadership books they'll say all all these kind of principles and stuff but they won't say do this then do this then do this in terms of what the process you're developing mm. what are some of the do this is oh, okay Fundamental foundations, like understanding that communication is organisation and it's all about conceptual and a shared conceptual understanding. I wanted to link that as well to what you were talking about before in terms of most organisations are top down and the message gets diluted. Yeah. That's a perfect illustration of how communication represents the quality of the organisation because yeah. if the communication is 100% and the people at the bottom have exactly the same vision and understanding as the people at the top and that's, just, that's an incredibly well aligned and powerful organisation. So that was great. Yeah. Great connection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll get onto how you can do that, right? But so it's step by step. So you've got the fundamental foundations. Step one is the imperative within, right? And this is and this is it. I'll try and keep it short and simple. Imperative within is who am I in service to? Who and who and what am I in service to? So who are the people and what are the concepts? 
And what's the relationship between the people and concepts, right? Very different to labeling people with what they're good at and what they're not good at. Because as a teacher, you'll know this. We try and label kids, right? And the more you see things as as entities and give them attributes, the the more you're going down the wrong rabbit hole, right? Uh, So... You, you let's say you've got a math teacher and an English teacher, and you've got uh, uh, and you've got a kid who's great at maths and a kid and is the same kid's not as good as in, at English. Ask the English teacher to describe that kid, and ask the math teacher to describe that kid, and you will get a description of two different kids, but they are not; they are the same, right? The difference is, is their relationship with maths, their relationship with English, maybe or maybe the relationship with the teacher but it's certainly about relationships. And everything in the world is relational. Everything from planets, general theory of relativity. If you've read Helgoland, which is about quantum mechanics, he's saying everything's relational. I agree. So the the imperative within is who and what am I in service to? This is against what am I in charge of? I'm in charge of this. I run that, right? Because that's for me, that's not leadership. People call that leadership, but I don't feel it is because if you're not spending time on things, how are you leading it? You just like you just feel that you've got a title, uh, some kind of power. You know, and uh, within that, we go into the true nature of power that all things that we consider power, all social constructs that are made up, money, a title laws, structures, they're all social constructs, they're all made up by human beings. They don't actually exist, they're just ideas and concepts, but we hold like common, a common consensus that we will, this is the law in this land, so we will abide by this law. And we say, but the consequence is this, we might go to prison. Well, only if everyone, only if the police and the, their law believe that they're the same thing. It's all, it's all made up. The irony, you know, especially about money is, you know, if we're chasing a a fictional money like Bitcoin, which uses loads of energy and we burn up the planet, like, I mean, we deserve to all die, don't we? Right? (laughs) How ironic was that? Well, I wanted to be rich. Well, what does rich mean? Well, I've got these numbers on a computer uh, and I've, yeah. Anyway, don't get me into that. Power is made up. True power, I see, is to empower, to give sort of business thought leader, like Adam Grant talks about givers and takers, right? And uh, it's givers who are the people who are valuable to an organization. So the imperative within is number one. If you don't get that, you can't move on to number two. Like if you don't get the foundational, the foundations, you can't move on to the imperative within, you can't move on to number two. So it's who am I in service to? So you, you, you'll be able to write down the people who you're in service to. Easy. You'll be able to make judgments of where they are. Like we say praises, notices and wonders. And maybe share that goodness, you know, the coaching goodness with those people. And then we have a structure called RMIs, risk mitigations and impacts. Like that's just throughout the business world. What's the risk? How are we mitigating it? And what impact is that having? Again, a design process. Expert leaders, people who wield power, will tell you, we'll be able to tell you how good their team is, but they won't be able to tell you what they are doing for them. 
they won't be coaching those people. If, if their team does something good, it's because of their leadership. You know, if the team does something bad, it's because of an individual has done something wrong. It's not their fault. That's how you, it's, they're easy to spot. <laughs> you know, you go, who's the dickhead in the room and everyone will point to the same person, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's the imperative within. The next piece is the big picture, which is like we organize the th- things we do the same way we organize the things we have. Everything in the world is organized in a hierarchy, right? A, a tree, a tree structure. So if you think about your house you go to the front door you open the front door there's rooms that have different functionalities there's the i know the toilet there's the kitchen uh living room you go into the kitchen you'll find the fridge and the sink you know the cooker you won't find the cooker in the bedroom normally right it's, it's sorted you might have a pantry you go into the pantry you know that your tins and beans are on the top right it's, it's sorted it's organized if you're in your bedroom, you might have a wardrobe. In your wardrobe, you might have a cupboard. In my wardrobe, I have a small space allocated to me by my wife uh, on the left. It's got a, a wardrobe, a cupboard of five drawers. I go to the top drawer, my pants are on my left, the socks are on the right, yeah? Every day I pick two socks of the same colour. If you took all that organisation away, every morning you'd walk into your wardrobe, Right? And you'd see all your clothes in a big pile and your job's the same. I have to find two socks the same colour. So imagine every morning you get up, you've got to get to work, but you've got to find two socks the same colour. Oh, I found a sock. Right, now I've got to find a sock the same colour, right? If it's not organised, you can feel, you know, you can imagine how anxious you would feel every single morning. And it's the same with all the things that we do. You know our roles, our responsibilities, all the things that we do. If we, if they're not organised, we see the things that we do as like a thousand things, right? Just all a big jumble, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do that, and not do that, and it's not sorted. But the things that you do, your responsibilities, you can write down, right? And if you write it down, you manage your anxieties. If you structure it hierarchically, you're managing your anxieties even more, even better, because then you can concentrate on one two three things at a time and that's that's the first sort of step is to be able to organize what you do through a hierarchical structure a a tree structure lots of people use mind maps that's a tree structure it's just the trees at the middle so this is why we've worked on our design principles so when someone says i've got a thousand things i says i've only got five i run eight schools you know, I lead eight schools. I'm in service to those people, but I've only got five. I've built a community through activism, leadership, and equity, sharing our stories as we go. I, name anything that we do in the in our schools. I'll tell you what which one of those it aligns to. That means I can write them down in a structure so that when I look at something, I'm only looking at a certain amount of things. I'm not looking at a thousand things. That helps you in loads of different ways. Impactivity is all about managing anxieties. When, when you've, you've got things in your head, you're anxious, fear and ego take over and you make you poor decisions on what to do next. So that gives you the structure. So, these, so the big picture is why, how and what to do, structured in a tree. The next piece is cycles. So these are all the things that I do. When do I do them? 
right? And so the sort of line is, the key line is, if you're leading something, you must be spending time on it. So when are you spending time on it? In a school, it's quite easy because you've got these cycles. So you've got an annual cycle, termly or half-termly, weekly, daily, you know, your, your lesson cycle. You've got these different cycles. And then by looking at all the things that you need to do and your time that you've got, you then allocate time to the things that you need to do. And you can do that in a, a strategy is having a rationale for when you're going to do something. Yeah, Systematic means you, you do one, then two, then three, then four. So it's just about putting what you do with when you're going to do it. If everything was in a calendar, imagine not having any to-do lists or anything. You've just got a calendar and you just follow the calendar and you know that if you follow that calendar, everything will be done and it will be of quality. Well, that makes me feel great, right? So that's the aim. Yeah. Probably never get there, but that's the aim. So the, the next step is managing interruptions, workflow. We live in a pandemic, right? Who's that from? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's made up. I don't know. Maybe I've made it up or maybe I've heard it somewhere. I don't know. But uh, don't we? Right? When we say a pandemic, we know what we're talking about. Like notifications are akin to sitting in an office and having someone with the door open and people coming in and knocking on your head every two minutes. Right? You wouldn't allow people to do that, yet you allow your technology to do that. You're allowing your technology to dictate your workflow, right? So managing interruptions is the, is the step, basically giving yourself permission to not be interrupted. Basecamp do this great. They've got a, a, some email called Hey, right? Uh, and I love it because it's all about that. You know, it, you can even have a pretty picture that covers up all the emails that, you, that you've seen, did you get Gwyn at hey.com? I, at my email is Gwyn at hey.com. Oh, done. I didn't get in quick, quick enough to get Ollie. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But Gwyn's a weird name, right? <laughs> Not many Gwyn's. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Gwyn at Harry stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the key and most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include reflections from my discussion with Gwyn, along with some of the ideas, leadership structures, and mental models that he's shared. Through Patreon, you can choose from three different levels of support at the base level, and for the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can get the interactive transcript and the monthly podcast summary. At high levels, you can get access to a members-only podcast feed with behind-the-scenes and additional audio content clip requests for segments of the podcast that you can use personally or within your professional development, and even the opportunity for a one-on-one video call with me to talk about teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the HBL podcast to explore additional benefits, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month.
That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Gwyn App Harry. Notifications should be off by default, right? And then you need to be in control of your technology. It's, it's like, you know, say you've got an in-tray and say you've sorted it out. Oh, this is the most important thing at the top. It's just like throughout the day, other people putting stuff on top of that, on top of that, on top of that, on top of that. You can't manage it and, and, and you get buried under the stuff. So you need to give yourself permission to not be interrupted. The only urgency is an emergency. And there's not that many emergencies in the world. So that's managing workflow. Lists is another one. So when you've got all this stuff coming in, like emails and da, 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 and blah, 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 all different inputs, how do you manage those things? Uh, I, I know a lot of people work f- out of their emails. Again, that's just like having an inbox that you're not in control of. So, so we have lists. Call them lists because... We don't have to-do lists, right? To-do list is like a, in software development, it's called a backlog, right? It's all of the things you've got to do and you carry it around with you on your back, right? These are all the things I want to do. And guess what? It keeps getting filled up. So I'm always carrying something around with me, yeah? It's never getting smaller, never getting smaller, never getting smaller. I do stuff. The more I do, the more people will put stuff on me to do, right? So we don't have a to-do list, but we have lists. So we have have three. So we have a get-done list, right? Every morning that get-done list is empty. And you you go onto your second list, ideas. And you choose from your ideas what you're going to get done that day that you have to get done. And you'll find that out of your ideas list, there's not that many things that you have to get done that day. And if you get those things done, then you can just choose some things out of your ideas, right? And we call the to-do list that most people have, we call ideas because they're only an idea until you decide to do it, right? And most of the time, to-do the things on the to-do list, actually, you don't have to do them. So just like over time, you go, oh, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to do that anymore. They're just ideas. You have as many ideas as you want. That's okay, but they're just ideas. They don't, it doesn't feel like a, something on your back that you, that you carry along with you. And then people call this the magic list, right? But we call it backstop. If, if I ask you to do something, can you do that, please, Ollie? This is on my get done list and you, you, it's, it's for you to do. So can you do that, please, Ollie? And you go, yeah, yeah, sure, right? It isn't yet done. So then you're anxious about, have you done it on? Has Ollie done that? Has Ollie, I don't know. Has he? Has he done it? I don't know. I'll have to ask him. Ollie, have you done it? No, not yet. Well, okay. Right? So we have a backstop. So if I give you something to do, I have to backstop it. You know, like after, if you drop the ball, I have to pick it up. So I put that in my backstop list and I put a date or it's a date and time when that flashes up to me. So anything on my backstop, I do not have to worry about until it pings up to me in a few days' time. And then when it pings up, I'll just, Ali, you done this yet? And that's the, back, the backstop. It makes you not need to think about anything, but it makes you not forget that you've asked people to do it. What tech do you use to manage these lists? Right, this is what I'd call, these, these lists are our own 
uh, our own lists. So these are what I'd call decentralized lists. So any sort of projects that we are working on together as a team, we'll put in Basecamp. So you do actually use Basecamp? Oh, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I can tell you why. Well, it's, it is awesome. But these are decentralized. These are my personal lists, right? So I've got my get done, I've got my ideas, and I've got my backstop. We use Google Tasks, and we use a, an app called Tasks Board, which creates like a little Kanban board where you can just move them from what, from one thing to another. It just sort of visualizes it, tasksboard.com. And they read the Google Tasks, and it just makes it really easy to drag them around uh, free. I have added another one. Don't tell people because I would say we only need three lists, but I have added another one that really helps me because I'm wanting calm and measured and strategic leadership. And that, that, that list is called my go slow list. So if I think I need to do something, but it may cause friction or it's a big thing, or I have to be careful about it. I'll put it on my go slow list because one option that people forget when you're deciding what to do is, is to do nothing, right? You know, you always think, right, here's a problem. What do we do? Always an option is to do nothing, right? So I put, I put things on my go slow list. So it's like a back burner idea, but I need to be careful about it because it might be big or important or affect loads of different things, or it might be sensitive. You know, my relationship with this person isn't great. Am I going to, how am I going to, sort this out so, so it just gives me time to think about it uh, there's nothing on my go slow list at the moment which is good they're my lists don't need any more everything anything else is project management and that goes into base camp and they're like shared well they call them to-do lists right but they're shared tasks and the the best thing about base camp is the hill chart right gantt charts it does not have thank god right it's got a hill chart and all the hill chart is... It's a dot. Yeah, it's a dot, right? But the most important thing about the hill chart is it splits up the task in terms of figuring things out and making them happen, right? This aligns with our model of leadership, which is empowering leadership, right? The relational problem solver, problem solver, not the expert leader, right? So the expert leader knows what to do. They don't, spend, they don't have to spend time figuring things out because they know what to do, right? They don't, but they, do, they think they do, right? So what that hill chart does is it goes, okay, what do we need to figure out? How much time? We need to spend time on figuring things out. We, have we figured it out yet? Yeah, we figured out what we're going to do. Oh, great. Now, you know, the, you go up the hill to figure it out because that's the hard thing. And then you go down the hill making it happen. It's just perfect and it's so easy and the, you, you can see at a glance where everything is, where the, you know, the, the shared conceptual understanding is at a glance, boom. It, it, like it aligns with the, the why, how and, and what, yeah? We start to figure out why, yeah? Once we've worked out how to do it, we can then see this is what it looks like when we get it right. It's, it's traveling up and uh, up the hill chart and then down. So it's totally aligned to Simon Sinek's start with why, totally aligned with empowering leadership. And that's why it works for us. So we follow the shape up methodology. So that's the, 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 the next step is 
basically continuous improvement through six-week projects. I mean, it could be seven or eight or whatever or five or four, but six weeks is like, it's just, it's just further enough in time to think, right, I've got time to figure stuff out before I get it done. And it's not too far to be just like not visceral, like you don't, you know, oh yeah, I've got plenty of time. I don't have to start doing that. So, so rather than having, we don't have, we have school evaluation, which is what we call baselining, but we don't have a school development plan. Like I joke about this, like uh, every school has a 37 page uh, school development plan that's, that, that says, this is what we're going to do over the next three years. And we spend loads of time writing it up. It's 37 pages. We all agree that's what we're going to do. And then we don't look at it again, right? Because it isn't what we're going to do because everything's connected. So when you do one thing, it affects other things. So that's why shaping up works, works for us. We baseline where we are. We decide what can we do that's going to have the most impact in the next six weeks. And we do that. We ship it. We ship that out in six weeks. And then we baseline again. And we'll do that maybe three, four times a year doing different things in different schools. So we get our key performance indicators or, or whatever we've decided, you know, these are the important things that we need to improve. What can we do in this six weeks? Then what can we do now? But it's important to baseline things in between. So that's the shaping up project pretty much. I mean, a book by Ryan Singer, who works for Basecamp called Shape Up. It is very much focused on software development, but we've sort of adapted the methodology to work in schools it's beautiful absolutely beautiful uh, he's a very clever guy that uh, ryan singer then finally which you wouldn't be surprised is well we, we, we sort of call it show me or our public celebration it, it works on two ways so when we've got stuff done we celebrate it publicly you know so like when kids have done an expedition we celebrate it publicly when when we as schools have done things we we celebrate those things. We call it show me as well because it's the it's the ultimate bullshit detector, right? Because you can see anything, whether it's a change in culture, whether it's a change in a system, you can see the results of those things. And if you can't see it, chances are it's not happening. A lot of people try and convince you that they have, are doing things or have done things. So the line is, great, that sounds fantastic, great, can you show me? And if they can't show it yet, they haven't done it, right? Yeah? So it's public celebration is, the, is rigor, how we get rigor. Rather than hierarchical scrutiny, we, we use public celebration. Awesome, that sounds brilliant. Let, us, uh, uh, let me see it. And they get it out and it's brilliant. You go, have you seen this? It's amazing. Look, I've, do you think we should all be doing this? Awesome. Can you tell those people what you've been doing? That's pretty much it. But like I'll say this, how we teach kids is how we lead adults. Teachers should be great leaders, right? But the, conventionally we see adults as being different to kids and, and I don't, you know. It's like you know, the older I get, <laughs> the, the more blurry it is, right? I like You don't suddenly become an adult when you're 18, you're a person, right? And you're, a, you're either a little young person with less experience or you're a big, bigger, older person with more experience but there's no there's no delineation kids are just like adults they're just not allowed to do stuff right we stop them from doing things 
you know, if when people say adults know best, I'll go, well, it's not what I see in the world. I see adults doing terrible things. Children are born innocent, not evil. It can't be that way around because we're all children. It's like chicken and egg. It's like it don't make sense. Like we're kids. We're all kids. I mean, I don't know. How old are you? 31. 31. And how do you feel? How old do you feel? It depends what I'm doing. Right. In relation to what? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I've, I'm 19. Since I've been 19, I don't feel any older. I mean, I know I look older, right? I know I'm not as skinny and not as good looking. Uh, but I, I feel like I feel 19 and I'm 50. I don't see any difference. The difference is in our behaviours. It's like when adults teach other adults, they don't check for understanding. Certainly don't check for un- implementation. I mean, that's, you know, you, you wouldn't teach kids by giving them, you know, a maths question and go, I trust that you're going to get that right. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at your answer because that would mean I don't trust you, right? But that's what we do as adults. I, I trust you to do something. So I'm not going to look at you because, you know, oh no, that would mean I don't trust him. Well, it doesn't. It means you're doing a good job. You're checking for their understanding, checking for shared conceptual understanding. And then are you doing it right? You know, that's a consequence of, of knowing it. Before you talked about, you said, I can talk about how you make sure that message is shared. Yeah. How do you do it? Oh, man. <laughs> so this is going to sound really, really simple, right? And I feel, I feel so stupid that we haven't done it in eight years. But then I look at everybody else and I go, oh, I'm not so stupid because no one else is doing it, right? People tease me because I was looking at something and I was solving a Rubik's Cube and I'm saying this Rubik's Cube is trying to tell me something and I'm putting this, there's, there's an architect called Christopher Alexander who, who's died recently actually, uh, a, a really famous architect who's influenced software crazily. He created something called Pattern Language and software developers have looked at it and gone, oh, great, well, we can build software like that. I mean, if you think about architecture, it's how do we use this space to create these behaviours, right? What behaviours do I want to enable? And, well, if you think of a screen, a computer screen, as a 2D building, same, same thing. You've got, you've got things and when, where they connect, that's where the life happens, the behaviours between the different uh, screens and stuff like that, user interface design. So you can sort of see the connection. But Christopher Alexander, his software developer, Greg Bryant, who I've been talking to on, on Twitter, and I watched, a, I watched a fascinating conversation between him and Ryan Singer. And I was like, oh my God. Like, when I was listening to Greg Bryant talk, that is years and years of distilled experience, right? And I just felt like an honour listening to his words. I, I didn't know why. There was a t- it's like a two-hour video and I just sat there and watched it and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I saw this little um, video. It's called Smoothly Unfolding Sequences. And I went, that's what I've been figuring out on my Rubik's Cube, right? And it's so simple. He talks about these, these smoothly unfolding sequences as a, a, a Perhaps this is the, the simplest way to explain complex concepts to other people, to empower them to do beautiful work in the world. It's so simple. It's like you've got a problem, you work to a solution, right? And I've 
for years I've been banging on about this. I've been saying there's a certain order to solving a problem, right? Whether it's arbitrary, whether you don't see it, it's still an order. You do one thing and then you do the second thing, then you do the third thing, you do the fourth thing, right? Greg Bryant's smoothly unfolding sequence is literally you write that order down, you look at the order, you work out whether it is the right order, you might want to reorder it. And then when you come across the same problem, you just follow the same sequence and you solve that problem, right? When you say it aloud, you go, duh, yeah, of course. But do you know what? People don't do it. So he's, he's got an example, like, uh, and they've created a, some software called GateMaker. <laughs> right? It sounds, like, it sounds weird. But it's like, it's a piece of software that, that takes you through the process of making a beautiful gate, right? <laughs> and it's a smoothly unfolding sequence. But by following the sequence, anyone can make a beautiful gate. I've used this to simplify things as well. So I, I, I did a tweet the other day, 144 characters. I described how you can solve the Rubik's Cube in 144 characters. If you, if you Google how to solve a Rubik's Cube, you will find like pages that says step-by-step step, and they're all algorithms. They start with the what. Do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. You don't know what the moves are doing. You, you can't follow them, but you just go, if you see this pattern, do this, do this, do this. So you have to remember the algorithm. Yeah, It's disempowering you to solve the Rubik's Cube. You don't know why. You've just got to remember those things. So in 10 years' time, you won't be able to do the Rubik's Cube. You'll have to go back and be and re, get the power, get the knowledge. Right Through unfolding sequences, I can describe to you how to solve a Rubik's Cube with one move, a very simple move, and one concept. And you, you will be able to solve the Rubik's Cube forever. I, I wrote it down in a tweet, 144 characters. Probably not tell you, I could tell, I could show you now, but, uh, but the point is... Show me now. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah, I can actually do it with the algorithms. Oh, okay. But I'd love to know... Oh, awesome. Well, I, I, at least I could a few years ago. Uh, yeah, <laughs> ah, yeah, right? So there you go. So let's uh, spin the Rubik's Cube, right? So the one move is this. So let's, I don't know, like that. So uh, I'll jumble up a bit more. The one move is this. So we'll start with the white, yeah? So you get the top slice, then the second slice, and then the bottom slice. Dear listeners, solving a Rubik's Cube on a podcast isn't the best combination. So I've actually cut out this part where Gwyn does this, this, the solving and the talking through, but I did record it as a video on my phone. So if you jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash ER forward slash Gwyn app Harry, just the link to this podcast on my website, you can actually see the video there of Gwyn solving the Rubik's Cube using this simplified approach that he's come up with. I hope you enjoy it. Back into the interview now, right at the point where Gwyn's about to solve the Rubik's Cube. So that bit's done. Last piece, ready? Bring it down, push it in, bring it up. Cube is done. Very impressive. <laughs> How to solve a Rubik's Cube using smoothly unfolding sequences. One concept, one move. I'll never forget. That's the point. I'll never forget how to be able to solve the Rubik's Cube because I can work it out myself. So, yeah. So the point of this 
is simplicity, right? Simple is hard. Anyone can make anything more complicated, right? Anyone can make anything more complicated. Simple is hard. So to be able to tell someone how to solve a Rubik's Cube using one move and one concept is hard, right? Writing down moves so that the remember is easy. Simple is empowering. Complex is wielding power. So the point of that is the way that we structure our leadership or the way that we've we've moved to, and, I, and I'm checking with me in a year's time or whatever, but I'm 100% convinced this will work because it just sounds so simple, right? The way we conventionally lead is through a hierarchical structure, yeah? Where the conceptual understanding is strongest at the top and weakest at the bottom. Mm-hmm. We want it to be strong at the bottom. So this is what we do, like the Rubik's Cube. We start with a problem. Let's say we start with a kid and they've got low attendance and we go, right, what's the first thing that we should do, right? And if it's a student-centred, we call this student-centred policy, but this is our smoothly unfolding sequence, right? The first thing that we should do is not send strongly worded letter to the parent because that letter will get folded up and put in the bin. It's not to send a fine because the parent will just get pissed off or pay it because it's easier to pay it than have an uncomfortable conversation, right? So you take a kid, they've got poor attendance. So we have our crew leaders, yeah? That's how we scale. So our crew leaders have got 12 or 13 kids. So, So this is how we solve this problem. This is our how, right? We take the kid. Do we, under, do we uh, understand the reasons why they're not attending? Let's say we do. If we don't, that's the first that's step one, right? Then we say, is there anything we can do in the future to improve their attendance? A lot of the times there's not, right? I, I don't know as a parent if you ever got, your kid is now at 92% attendance. This is terrible, but school knows that your kid broke the leg and they had to go into hospital, you know, something you couldn't do anything about. You still get a letter, which is stupid and a waste of money and a waste of time, right? So do we understand the reasons for low attendance? Can we do something in the future? And what is that, right? And then it's, do we have a good relationship with that kid's parents, right? Because the only way that that kid's, Tendency is going to improve is through good relationships with parents, right? And the reason that the way our crew leaders do that is we, we have what we call deposits and withdrawals. So we try and uh, uh, contact our parents regularly and talk to, about the good things. They're the deposits. So that when we want to make a withdrawal, talk about a bad thing, our parents trust us. They trust our opinion. They tr- trust our decision. So if we've got a good relationship with parents, then we can start to fix them and do those things, right? So we write that. That's pretty much it. A simple step-by-step way of improving attendance. Then when we find a school that may have low attendance, we choose a kid by arbitrarily. Just choose a kid with low attendance arbitrarily. And this is the key. We use a case study, Right, and the case study is this: we get we get all the people in that line of accountability from that child, 
So the crew leader, the phase leader, the head of school, the chief wellbeing officer, the chief operating officer, all the way up to the trust. One kid, right? Because the kid's arbitrary. It's not really the kid that is the point of this. The point of this is that we have every level of leadership in the same room, either physically or in a Hangout, Google Hangout, or on a Google Doc, don't matter. But all at the same time, we are all looking at the steps. So you say, crew leader, do you understand the reasons? If not, go and understand the reasons. Have we identified, is there anything that we can do to help them? If not, identify those things. Right? Do we have good relationships with parents? If not, establish good relationships. Then work with the parents on the mitigation of the poor attendance. Normally that's five people, right? Not 20, five, just five people. But what that case study does, that ensures that all those five people across all lines of leadership have the same conceptual understanding. This is how we improve attendance. The crew leader will not say, we should just send them a fine if they've not got a good relationship with the parents. If they've tried everything, then yeah, I'll send them a fine. See what happens, right? The crew leader or the phase leader will not say attendance is a, should be a central administration job because we'll say, why would we reduce a human scale problem to like an impossible, like thousand administrators sending out letters that don't affect anything centrally. We've, we've got a human scale issue here. You're only looking after 12 or 13 kids. We give you time to look after them, right? They won't say that because the case study will ensure that everybody has the same conceptual understanding at all levels of leadership. So that when we've done that case study once, the crew leader will then impact their other 12 kids in the same way. They will have that same conceptual understanding. The phase leader will impact their eight crew leaders in the same way. The head of school will impact their five phase leads in the same way. The chief wellbeing officer will impact their eight heads of school in the same way. And that's it. So a case study approach yeah. that's built around a simply unfolding sequence, yeah. which has been established and codified. Yeah. Great quote. The main problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. Right. I think that's George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. Great. How do you check how do you check for understanding Great. that people have come out of that case study process Great. with the same understanding? Yeah. Show me. Right. So the case study is called, yeah maybe from directors or whichever level of leadership doesn't matter. Maybe there's a smell, maybe there's, you know, something not quite right. We call it, we create the case study and then we are able to see it. We don't just believe people saying they've done it. We see it. So we can see the attendance is understood because we can see the codes and the reasons for it. We can see whether there's a, a reason that's for improving it. So it's like, if they've got a broken leg, no. If they're disappearing every Friday afternoon, yes. Right? Mm. We can see that because the crew leader will be able to, will have to show that in the case study. And then parental contact, we record parental contact. So is there other deposits, other withdrawals? What do they look like? What's the quality of them? We can see those things. We can see the evidence of those things. 
And then if we've got a risk mitigation and impact, so the risk is the kids' low attendance mitigation is we check in with grandma who has them every Friday, making sure that they're not picking them up earlier. That's the mitigation. What's the impact of it? And if the impact's not being followed up, then the impact needs to be followed up. It's all recorded. Mm. So you can see it. That's the bullshit detector. Yeah. Show me. Nice work. A challenge. If you've got energy for it. Yeah. So simple is hard. You've said it yourself. Mm. But simple, if you can convey the simple principle-based understanding, then it's powerful. Yes. It's empowering. It's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a challenge I face in my maths class, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm teaching year 12 maths class. It's like the the bottom set. It's like the the lowest pre-tertiary maths you can do. And the most focused upon outcome of my teaching is the marks that students get at the end of the year. As I have taught this subject over time, the approach I've had is a more, well, it's interesting to argue whether it is a simpler or a more complex one. But what I've done is I've basically present for every problem type a sequence of steps that the students can follow that will lead to success, Yeah. right? However, it's not necessarily understanding-based. Mm. It's more a recipe. It's more the algorithms. If you see the cube in this position, okay. perform this algorithm and you'll be successful. You know, that's, that's a very successful approach, as is the algorithm approach because lots of people have learned Ruby's cubes through the algorithm. But I, I agree that what you just showed me was more empowering. Right. However, I also feel it's harder. And there are constraints, like there are time constraints. Like you said before, the, the command and control approach gets results really quickly. There are constraints in time. There are also, I think there's also constraints on like, I've got to be careful here, but I feel like a lower percentage of people could learn to solve the Ruby's Cube using your approach than using the algorithmic approach. You may disagree with that. I don't, I've never tried. Yeah. <laughs> when I say, can I teach him? They'll say no. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel the same way. And it has been my experience in the mathematics classroom as well. If I really try to emphasize a principle-based approach Mm -hmm. with at least the students that I've been working with for the last Mm -hmm. few years, I lose more of them, takes longer, and less of them are successful than if I take a systematic step-based or recipe-based approach. Okay. Thoughts? Yeah. Okay. So I'll ask one. I'll ask you one question. I, I, I am not disagreeing with you, right? I said the easiest and quickest way to teach someone is through an algorithm, right? I'm not disagreeing with you in terms of that. How much did you get taught at school? How much stuff did you get taught, taught at school? And how much do you remember now? Well, it's a great question. Unfortunately, it's one I can't answer very accurately because it's, one forgets where one learned something. So yeah, yeah, I okay. don't know. Well, I'll give you an anecdote. My best friend, Stuart, right? Probably the cleverest person I know. He, he makes microphones. Like no one, in, nobody makes microphones, right? You know, like he makes microphones. For his job or for fun? For his, jo- his job, he like makes brilliant microphones. Like the last Star Wars theme tune uh, you know, theme was recorded through Stuart's, my friend Stuart's microphones. I can show you the video, right? Yeah, ribbon mics. I asked him that question. I said, "What? What do you remember from school? And what do you? What out of those things? What do you use now?" And he said, after thinking about it, he said, "I can only think of one thing, and it was in my woodwork class." So he's got a PhD in chemistry, right? He said all the chemistry that he learned in in school. 
when I did when he did uh, in his GCSEs in O levels whatever when he did A levels they said forget that it's not that it's this and then when he went to university degree they said forget your A level it's not that it's this right happens in physics a bit as well right yeah yeah I think it probably happens in most subjects he said the one thing I remember that I use all the time it was in my woodwork class and it's this uh, measure twice. Cut once. <laughs> I learned that in work too. Right? <laughs> right? So it's almost, a, it's a challenge to me. It's like, you know, what we've got is we've got a setup where we think the purpose of school is, to, is for kids to get good test scores on a paper-based exam test. Right? I think that is such a low bar. I cannot believe in 2022 human beings are subjecting our children to that low bar, right? I think it's crazy. The stuff that we are teaching kids is highly irrelevant to the lives that they are going to leave. That if a 16-year-old takes high-stake tests in, in the UK, yeah, the stuff that they learn is highly irrelevant to when they're 17, to when they've finished their exams, it's high, they will not need 99% of that knowledge. I just don't think it's good enough. You know, I guess the, the question is sort of loaded because you, you fixed something in that, that. You said, you said, I get measured by the, so you're fixing this. My kids have to do well in this test, right? You're not saying my kids have to be able to do basic maths when they leave school in order to in order to have better lives yeah and i love maths is a great example because just just taking away a a, a big number from a bigger number you can do that in like i don't know five six different ways right and i i saw something on twitter it said here's the four ways that you can take a big number away from a bigger number, right? Which one do you use? It's great little question, right? And I go, oh, I remember I got taught that way. And then I looked at the other ways and I went, oh, actually, that makes more sense to me, right? And the best bit was in the comments, it said, actually, the best way is not none of those four. It's the shopkeeper's way. And they explained the shopkeeper's way. And I was like, that's it. That's how we should be teaching. Or, or like, but like, get the kids to decide. Like, what? How? How best would you remember how to use this? This? Does it take more time? Yes. Are, uh, are there time constraints on trying to cover things? Yes. Are you measured on the wrong things as a teacher? Yes. Are we testing the wrong things with our kids? Yes. Yes, we are. Right. When we do our curriculum, we base it on three things. How do we look after our planet? How do we look after our communities? And how do we look after ourselves and each other? Yeah, you need maths to do that. But you start from the why, not from the what. And that's, that's what we're subjecting our kids to. Is that a tension for you at XP, given that you do teach in a way that tailors to the GCSE? Not really, because we look at the genius of the end, so we can do both. Right, so we can we can construct learning expeditions where kids are engaged, where we can do cross stuff. You know, you know how much time is wasted when you split things up in, in terms of subjects. So, 
Do you learn to write an essay in history? Yes, you do. Do you learn to write an essay in English language? Yes, you do. Do you learn to write an essay in English literature? Yes, you do. Why don't you combine them and learn to write an essay for all three? Mm, Same thing in STEAM. You know, people could say STEAM like it's the natural thing, you know, but humanities, you know, we teach history, English language and English literature together. It's, It's, I think it's even better match. So we, you can get the genius of the end. You can create, this is what we do. We create highly academically rigorous learning expeditions. So they have purpose and they're mapped to standards so that our kids can pass exams well. But I will qualify this, right? If I wanted to create a school where the only important thing is to get the highest exam results, I would create a school with a conformist behaviour policy that kicks out kids who don't conform. I'd create stupid rules just to, te- just to test them, yeah? And if they don't conform, they're out, right? Because then you've got kids who are willing to conform in front of you will do exactly what you tell them to or shout at them to do, right? The fastest way to teach kids, I agree, is to tell them what to do, not why, Right? And the same goes for exams, right? So if you, want, if you want your kids to have marginally better exam results than the kids in XP, I would have a conformist behaviour policy and I would teach to the exam, right? But that fails kids. That fails the kids that aren't there anymore, that can't conform, that don't want to stick to stupid rules. I don't want to stick to stupid rules. I want to wear my hair however well. I used to want to wear my hair however I wanted, right? I want to express who I am. The cost is freedom of expression. The cost is the creativity of our children. And for me, that cost is too high. I am not willing to sacrifice the creativity of our children for test results that do not matter when they leave school. Qualifications open doors that are really, really important. They open doors. But whether you get a six or a seven or an eight and a nine does not matter when you go to an interview. What matters is who you are, your character and the quality of the work that you've produced, right? You ask any of our kids to show the quality of their work. They will not show you a number. They will show you a book. They will show you a film. They will show you a a, a work of art that's been publicly displayed. They'll show themselves. For me, it all comes back to how much do we love our children? And exam results don't cut it. That's a low bar. That is easy to do. It's what most schools do. It's easy. What we do is hard, it's complex, and it's scary. And they're the only reasons. that That's okay if it's too hard, if it's too complex, and it's too scary. That's okay. Don't do what we do. But they're the only excuses. What advice would you give to your first-year teacher self? No one's in charge. Three books you'd recommend teachers read? Well, I'd have to start with An Ethic of Excellence by Ron Berger. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's the reason I'm sat here. If you want to know how to do the things that we do, then we've written one book, How We XP. That you can either buy it for a tenner or you can download it for free. That's empowering, right? And then the other Ron Berger book is Leaders of Their Own Learning, which is like a handbook. That's the how, how to do it. I've read other books, like there's a book called Why Fly That Way, 
by Kathy Greeley. And that tells you about the importance of community, that a school is a community. So a school isn't just a building full of teachers and kids, it's a community. We're building a community. And, and I believe that schools are a reflection of the society that we want to live in. Some people want to live in a society where they hold the power and they need a workforce that does what they tell them to do. And that's the society that they want to live in. I want to live in a society where we're free to express who we are and the wonderful things that come out of that as human beings. That book is from the perspective of a, t- of a classroom teacher and her struggles to create a cohesive community. I love that book. She's come here, Cathy. She's lovely. I call her my Princess Leah. Other books that are not about education as, that, that I get inspiration from is uh, a number of them, The Shape Up by Ryan Singer by Basecamp, uh, Rework by uh, Basecamp. I mean, there's a ton of books that Christopher Alexander wrote that they're quite complex, but you, you might want to just delve into his, his world of pattern language and stuff like that. There's a book on screenwriting about the, the, the importance of narrative. Is it called Screen? But that talks about universal design patterns in narrative and screenwriting, and it's really uh, narrative and stories are really important to us as human beings, right? You know, you don't have a story if you can say, I've got two A's, a B, and three C's, right? You have a story when, you know, <laughs> when my Jack said to, said to us in his final word, he said, I want to do a PhD in quantum mechanics. That's my boy. <laughs> uh, believe it or not. Yeah. And he said, he said, I haven't learned physics when I remember everything that my teacher has taught me. I, I haven't learned physics when I get 100% in an exam. I haven't learned physics when I remember everything that's in a textbook. He said, I've learned physics when I can prove that everything in that textbook is wrong. I remember that story, right? You know, Jack's thinking about going to Oxford, right? He'll probably say, tell that story at Oxford. Right? Oxford aren't looking for three A stars. They're looking for something different. Every student who turns up for an interview will have the right test scores. So how do they choose? Well, I know my boy will bring his artwork to the interview at Oxford and if they're not appreciative of someone showing how creative they are and how creative you need to be to be a great scientist then Oxford isn't the right place for my boy yeah it's not good enough uh, and he'll go to a different university but maybe they'll be smart and go wow this this lad's got courage he's, he's, he's not just talking about his test scores and what he knows about physics and quantum mechanics he's, he's showing his beautiful artwork and how creative it can be that takes courage and integrity maybe they'll think that I don't know but narrative is really important I'm trying to think of, of, of other but I mean Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game is if you want to be an empowering leader look at his work like it codifies what we do. It talks about circles of safety, feeling safe while you're feeling vulnerable. Well, if that's not crew, I don't know what is, mm. right? His why is that he wants people to go to work 
be fulfilled, do great work and come home happy. Well, that's that what everybody wants. And, and, and so he espouses a, a style of leadership which enables that to happen. And that's totally in line with our relational problem solving leader. Like if you want to know about business, Business for Punks by Brewdog is a really good book. As in the brewery. As in the brewery, yeah, as in the beer. Had one of them the other day. It's right. very good. Quite nice, aren't they? Yeah. The, you know, some really smart business advice in there. And it's a lot of it's going against the convention. Not just to be different, but because it's the right thing to do. You know, it, what we're doing here is not a reaction against anything. It's it's we had we had the privilege of starting a school with a blank on a blank sheet of paper so what do you do and yeah we've got you know constraints there's a saying about an artist in chains right you know the const- it's the constraints that make make the art good you know and we get the same amount of money as every other school we have the same constraints in terms of Ofsted in terms of exams and stuff like that we just try our best to make the richest experiences for our children as possible in those constraints sometimes we get it right sometimes we don't you know but our kids are learning stuff that they will remember for the rest of their lives something that's been really important in my life is my mum died when I was really young and my dad wasn't the best dad is is just no longer on this mortal coil and people ask me Quinn, where do you where do you get your moral compass from when your you know your parents weren't pretty much there? You know, I I was living my dad was living in London when I was like 13, 14 years old. And I, I answer the question and uh, like I don't you know, do I think I've got a moral compass? I don't know. But that's for others to, to think. But but the way, reason I ask the way I ask uh, answer the question is I say, I read a comic when I was a kid. It was called 2000 AD. I don't know whether you've heard of 2080. Well, it's still going and it's still brilliant, right? And I still read it, right? It was made by a guy called Patrick Mills, Pat Mills, who I talked to through email and stuff now, which is unbelievable. He's a hero of mine, right? He created a comic called 2080. It started in 1977. 2080, you know, that comic didn't, they didn't think that comic would exist. 2080 was something in the future. Right? So it's, it's about science fiction. You might have heard of Judge Dredd. You heard of Judge Dredd? Uh, Carl Urban did the, did the film. Uh, it's, a future, it's a future cop, a future fascist cop in uh, sort of the post-apocalyptic, they call it Mega City One, which is like the sort of east coast of America. So I was seven reading this comic and I was learning about fascism. Right, they had uh, a strip called Strontium Dog. It was about mutants and like X Men, similar stuff. But when you when you're a kid and you're reading about Johnny Alpha, the Strontium Dog, the mutant, or X Men, you're learning about racism. There was this great strip called Flesh, which, like any kid, any boy, right, would like. It's about dinosaurs eating cowboys. Right. It was like, how do you get dinosaurs eating cowboys? Well, the premise of this was in the future, we ran out of meat. Right. So we we worked out how to time travel. And the one use that we put it to 
I think might be a gap in the plot here, right? The one use we put it to was to send people back to the dinosaur age and, and like farm dinosaurs for the meat, right? So you got dinosaurs eating cowboys. But what I was learning about was capitalism. I could go on, right? Uh, Nemesis the Warlock uh, was about authority and religion. The baddie, Torquemada, which I think Torquemada comes from the Spanish Inquisition. His motto was, be pure, be vigilant, behave, right? And so it was the baddies. So the, the, the baddies, the goodies were like normal people, like working class normal people. The baddies were authority. The baddies were religion. The baddies were police. The baddies were politicians, the people who held power. So I grew up reading this comic that cost nine pence a week, you know, and that's where my, I believe in those stories. I still do. So for me, getting up every morning to do a really hard job uh, like we've got here is easy for me because it's all about social equity. It's about giving our kids the opportunity that we would want when we were kids, you know, when I walk out there and I see our kids, I see me. So it's easy for me to give and empower them. And, you know, I just think getting them to pass exams is too easy. It's not enough for our children. It opens doors, but it doesn't get them the job. You know, they, other people have got the same numbers on a piece of paper as they have. And, you know, you spoke to our kids and... You know, kids that just come from a normal working class background can talk to adults really, really well. Uh, it's very unusual. Sure is. Yeah. Um, so I'm, that's, I'm proud of that. Any last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Quinn? Oh, God. We often get people coming in and, go and say, oh, XP is amazing. You know, we want more of them. So how are you going to scale it? How are you going to scale it up? How are you going to, you know, like, like scale seems to be this thing that, everybody wants and scale or growth looks very different than just lots of schools because for me growth is about ideas and the the infection of ideas the making an idea a virus or a meme if you look at anything you know any good idea is a is a virus or a meme it's like you know we just repeat it we're just the vessels for ideas so, you know, XP is beyond any one of us. XP is, a, is, a, is our idea. And, and so we share what we do freely with anybody. If we can, if we can make a copy of what we do, we, we, we share it. So you can, buy, you can buy our book if you want a nice fluorescent pink book on your uh, bookshelf. Great. But we also give it away. All our curriculum is online for free and more so. It will be more online, more so. How we do things will be more online, freely available. So if anyone wants to help or if anyone like is aligned to the things that we do here, just pick an idea up and run with it. You know, <laughs> talking of simplicity, one of my really good friends, Jeff Robin, who used to be the art teacher in High Tech High, he simplified project-based learning. He said, you know, do the project first, work out the deliverables, teach the deliverables, make the learning public, right? I remember those four things because it makes sense, right? 
said, let's start with the why. But he even reduced that to one thing, which was just do something. So I agree with Jeff Robin. Gwyn Apari, it's been phenomenal. You talked about listening to Greg Bryant and how you felt it was, you know, you were listening to years of knowledge and experience distilled. I feel exactly the same way today. So thanks for your time, mate. And um, visiting XP, meeting yourself, meeting Andy has been huge, pretty transformational for me. Why do so many people cry at this school? That's what I need to friggin' work out. I was crying yesterday when I was watching Jamie teach. Um, and well, I was, It was so bad, right? No, it was so bloody good. And, um, you know, on this uh, student ambassador tour, I was holding back tears as well. It connects with you, right? It's an emotional connect. Like, I go, I'm a punk from Donny. I don't cry. But, you know, it's emotional. There's something that we're tapping into here that is so fundamental about humanity. I don't think we know how important this work is. And it's beyond me. You know, it's not about me. It's about it's, it's what it's what our kids are doing. When I heard a year seven kid, like probably three years in, saying, you know, we have a character trait called integrity. I said, what's integrity? And he said, it's doing the right thing when no one's looking. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll have that. It's, they teach us so much. It's like, like I say, it's like we, we're not teaching them. They're enabling what is already within themselves. And watching that happen connects. Gwyneth Harry, this is not the end. <laughs> really pleased to meet you and thank you for this conversation. It's, uh, I didn't know I'd spend so long talking to you, but it's been really good for me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.